For now, it is my joy to welcome up my good friends, Mary DeYoung, to read the Word of God, and Liz Wakeman to bring the teaching this morning. Thank you. Good morning. We are continuing in Philippians. We are um, in chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved world generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you, Mary. I'm going to. Oh.
sorry. To it. I think when I unplugged it, I probably messed it up. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Liz Wakeman, and I've been a disciple of Jesus since my early adulthood and part of this church since 1996. Disciple literally means learner, one who's taught, and that's my goal, to keep learning all of my life. Even though I've been part of this church since 1996, you might not know me, partly because I took it to heart when I read what Paul wrote in Romans 14:12. This is the way it's worded in the message. So tend to your knitting. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. <laughs> I love to knit, but not to meddle. However, I do love community and believe that community is God's tool in our lives to learn and grow up as his body. In Philippians, a letter from Paul to a community is full of important help for us. At a high level, Philippians is about the contrast between the unity of the church and the worship of the Lord King Jesus as opposed to the world around them and how they worship their lords, earthly kings. We'll talk about the practical aspects of that as Paul describes it in his letter. Our larger community, our country, calls today Father's Day and acknowledges still that fathers are crucial to life for children in physical reality and also in emotional health. If anyone here has sadness on this day, if your father has died or you had a hard relationship with your father or no father in your life, we want to extend our arms to you and encourage you that God is not like human fathers. He loves us and knows us better than we love and know ourselves. I'd like to celebrate my dad. I miss him. He's not around anymore, but um, I celebrate the good gift that he was to me. Wally and I are at the age that we find ourselves the oldest people in certain groups. He's the oldest father alive in our nucle nuclear family. Our fathers are both gone, and he's been a good daddy. This week is an interesting intersection of events, as our 42nd wedding anniversary is June 20th. I married the man who became the father of our children. And at our wedding, our friend Allison read Philippians 2, 5 to 11 in our service. And here I am sharing my thoughts about that verses. <laughs> um, let me tell you the story about Allison. It was impactful for me. Um, when I was in high school, I was friends with Wally's little sister and met him through her. They introduced me to Young Life and invited me to go. I went and became intrigued by older leaders who were interested in high school kids. And there just seemed to be great fun and friendship in that group, so I kept going. And as it went, I got to know Wally, who was two years older and already a Christian. He was different than any young man I had met. I might say the others represented as high school boys more than he did, and he had some maturity and integrity that I really admired. I could trust that what he said, and he cared about people. Allison was also new at Young Life and interested in knowing Wally. I think both Al and I had become believers within that first year of, of getting to know each other. She was a year older than I, which at that age is pretty important. She was cooler and older. Wally was just getting to know different people, and he was very transparent about um, not really dating us. He was just getting to know people. Um, I'm positive, though, that I felt sure that if push came to shove, he would choose Al over me because of her poise and depth of thought, and I really liked her, too. There was, at least in my mind, some of that competition that's common among high school girls who like the same boy. He had probably taken each of us out a few times when she came to me and said, Liz, let's not let this get between us. Let's not let the enemy divide us over Wally. Let's be faithful to one another and trust Jesus with this. I couldn't imagine 
anyone thinking of that. It wasn't in my thinking or my faith at that point to, to go there. But she understood the inversion that Jesus taught about being a servant, laying down your life for your friends, not grasping for status. This was so different from the culture, especially in high school. It was clear that she had met Jesus and wanted to follow his lead and let him be her Lord. As time went on, Wally and I ended up dating for six years while I graduated from high school and then college, much of the time spent apart. And Allison and I and Wally remain friends to this day. In fact, I called her to see if it was okay if I told her story in front of everyone. <laughs> she said yes. She read those verses in our wedding, and I vividly remember how much it meant to me to hear the emotion in her voice, because she really knows who Jesus is and how he is. And she, like him, gave up her place, did not grasp at position or status among us. She thought of others first. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and connect these words to meanings in people's hearts. Please let the words fall away that are not helpful and bring power to the ones that are needed. In Jesus' name. So Philippians 2, 1 to 4 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any tender mercies and compassions, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Last week, Wes talked about suffering and that Paul experienced real persecution having been thrown in prison for talking about Jesus. That section of scripture was just prior to this one, and the so, or therefore, in verse 1, refers back to that section. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now here to be mine. He mentions opponents just before this, implying some physical opposition from people. In contrast to this conflict, the fight that Christians were involved in then, in a world that didn't understand them, opposed their message, and even used violence to stop them from spreading the message, Paul, in verse 1, talks about encouragement and consolation of love, which feels like a balm to my spirit, and I'm convinced was soothing to Paul as he remembered his friends and their fellowship together. I believe he's specifically talking about the believers getting their comfort and love directly from Christ. Christ is the one who can communicate to my heart and spirit that he's with me, loving me. If this is my foundation, then I can progress outward to having fellowship of the Spirit with other people. We can start to be of one mind and full accord if each of us is in Christ and knows his love for us individually and as a group. Because Christ is in each of us, though there may still be things we disagree about, we will have a ground of understanding because of the Spirit of Christ and the way we understand the world as he transforms us to be more like him. And I think in, in that time... Um, the, the way they understood community was much different than now. I think now we have a hard time grasping that they could um, try to have salvation as a group. We're so individualistic that we tend to just um, understand it individually. Paul wants them to have unity as a body, which is different from uniformity. Jesus wants us to be each ourselves and still have unity among us. Seeing each person's unique place in the body helps us to elevate one another. We can see the value in the differences and the way we need the differences to operate as a body. I've seen such a beautiful example of this fellowship among a group of men in our previous church. Uh, Wally was part of the men's group, which at first seemed like such different people that they might not even get along or understand one another. Yet these six men had met for five years every week, and there was deep affection and fellowship among them. 
We were considering a move out of state, and no one knew if that would lead to coming back in a few years or being gone for the rest of our working lives and on into retirement, but <laughs> you can see where it did end up. Each week, it would be a different person being on the hot seat or getting prayer. And that particular week, because of the big decision, it was Wally's turn. Um, and I describe it this way. I don't know that they were thinking of this, but um, if you know about the Friends Church, the Quakers, you might know that they make decisions by consensus. They sit in a meeting together for clearness and wait for the Holy Spirit to show each person what God wants them to know. Um, we were at the Columbus Vineyard then, and they, they decided to, they spent time listening to what God had to say. The other five came in saying to Wally, you shouldn't move, it doesn't make sense, we don't want you to go. And I wonder if they all expected God to say don't move. But actually, all six of them came away from that time before God convinced that God wanted us to move. This impacted me greatly because it let me know that this was a bigger decision than just me and Wally making our next move. But God was involved in it, and it, it meant a lot to me to know that. This is a vivid example of humility, placing self before God and submitting to his direction. And it's a good way to live together in a church. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I read in several places that humility was a word created by these New Testament Christians because for Greeks, self-assertion was such a part of their way of life. One of the books I was reading said, um, the word translated humility appears to have been coined by the New Testament writers. This word denotes a spiritual grace. It is the opposite of selfishness, which leads people to strive for ascendancy or to act for flattery. Humility indicates a self-forgetfulness which enables one to form a right view of others. Humble people do not think disparagingly of themselves. They know themselves and they accept themselves. To be humble as a mature person means realizing that we're made from the dust and to dust we return. Yet God has made us in his image and redeemed us through Christ. Holding these two truths in my own mind is difficult at times. I tend to swing from one side, seeing my very dusty self, to the other side, seeing how much I'm loved. Hearing it stated in the words of the late Tim Keller has helped me. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The emphasis on holding these two truths in my spirit simultaneously is very helpful. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is sometimes a stretch for me as a contrast to the verse about tending to my knitting. <laughs> but rather than meddling in others' affairs, I think this means to be interested and concerned for my family and the church. And don't be so self-involved that I don't even know if someone's struggling or could use prayer or some kind of practical help. Our culture is most likely to encourage independence and not another orientation. So we can be very countercultural by taking care of one another. It's a charge for us to stay alert and interested. As I was working through this passage, I was listening to a podcast about teaching strategies, and the hostess said, it's not so helpful to give lists of do's and don'ts and expect people to change just doing the list. Instead, it works better to inspire, to feed the imagination, give a vision as a deep learning strategy. I thought back over these verses, and at first I thought Paul was just making lists. 
But the next section is Paul's poem, or hymn of inspiration. He inspires our imaginations with the person and the mystery of Jesus. Many scholars believe it was a hymn of the early church, and Paul writes it here to bring worship and wonder to his audience. The subject of this is so far above our comprehension and understanding that worship is our best first response, rather than trying to theologically dissect what Jesus did and who he was or is. It's a poetic use of language more than a theological treatise. This hymn is at the center of the book of Philippians. It's the very high point, the truth that's at the foundation of the letter and who Paul was. As you listen, try to imagine the reality behind these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wants us to have a renewed mind that is like the mind of Jesus. This is radical. It's a mind that's willing to give up rights and rest in his humanity for our sakes. I wonder if the ground of who Jesus is includes such a deep understanding of the ways of the kingdom that it was not such a stretch for him to leave his throne and condescend to us. This is in the fabric of who God is and what he does. It takes a lot for us to get an inkling of the way it works, much less how to do it. But Jesus knew it and lived it. The power dynamics of God are opposite of the world's. This is a mystery. God has given us imaginations to help us hold disparate things in our minds, things that we don't understand completely. Literature has been very helpful to me in enlarging my capacity for mystery and truth. Learning to read the Bible as literature is also very helpful to reading scripture well. Jace taught, has taught a class here called The Bible as Literature, and I've learned so much from him. The narrative sections of the Bible are like stories. The writers made narrative choices that give the reading depth, the writing depth and meaning, and actually layers of meaning as we keep going back to it and learning to see it. There are symbols that point back to other stories in the Bible and connections that the writers are helping us to make to help our understanding. They're true stories, like the one I, was, I told starting the talk. It did actually happen. I told it the way I remember it, but as far as I know, it's all true. The Bible is also inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I think when we read it, he's also involved giving us insight and communicating to us the things we need to see at a given time. I'm saying this because I think certain stories that are fiction have truth and draw from the traditions of the past that connect us to real truth. They're not theological writings, but stories that illuminate true, illuminate true stories. I'm thinking of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis and the way it's helped me to understand something about the truth of Jesus' life. Most of you probably know this story. It's about four children during World War II in England who must move to the country from London to be safe from the war. They discover a land that they enter magically through a wardrobe door and discover that the one who will save the country of Narnia from the White Witch is a lion named Aslan. When the children first hear his name, they're moved. They don't know why exactly, yet their sense of awe was profound. I can feel their awe when I read that part. 
The youngest brother betrays them to the White Witch and must ultimately die as a traitor, according to the deep magic. However, Aslan gives himself in Edmund's place, and a reality of that world is set in motion. The witch kills Aslan. The description of the strong, powerful lion submitting to the evil ones brings home to me how awful it was for Jesus to submit to the authorities in his life and die as he did. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The two sisters are grieving for him all night. In the morning, they realize that he's gone. The stone table on which he was killed has been broken. The girls rejoice when they realize he's alive again and ask him, what does this mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a deep magic deeper, there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death would start working backwards. There's something deep operating below the surface in Narnia when this transaction can make death start working backwards. We read about Aslan taking such joy in his new life. He romps and plays in the field. Then he takes the girls and they go and breathe life into the animals that had been turned to stone. The implications of resurrection are drawn really well, and we can connect it to the way Jesus is raised from the dead and death is defeated in our world. We can experience some of the emotion of the newness of life. To come back to verses 5 to 11, as we work to let this mystery have a place in our hearts, I was considering where was Jesus at the foundation of the world and what was he like? The verse here says he was in the form of God. The word in English made me think of structure or appearance of God. And in Greek, the word is morphe. It does mean form, and also sometimes it's translated nature or essence. Since we have no real understanding of what form God has or how the Trinity exists, we can only imagine that going from his place with the Father to a human form was more than putting on a cloak. It includes the form and the nature. Then he says he emptied himself. Some translations say he made himself nothing. If he truly has the nature of God, he must retain all the attributes of God. Yet we surmise that he seems to have restricted those abilities when he took on the nature of a servant, especially omniscience and omnipresence. He actually became a man, yet he was still God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is a mystery. The way Jesus was humble is the example for us to follow. John describes it really well in his gospel in John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wrapped around him. Jesus knew who he was, where he had come from, and where he was going. And this gave him the power to be a servant and also to have the authority of God in a human body and to lay it down to serve. I believe to have the mind of Christ for us includes knowing who we are, realizing the truth of our fallenness while still knowing that we have the Holy Spirit with us and we carry him into the world. For me, it's helped me to sit with Jesus and ask him who he says I am.
What name does he give me? To be able to turn toward him in my weakness and find the help that he offers, the power to love and forgive and help is the best gift. And on with this passage. <laughs> Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm always touched when I imagine every knee bowing before him. This is finally right. All along, God has been giving us our very breath, holding our cells together, keeping us alive. And in the end, everyone will know that and acknowledge him. Jesus came down and God lifted him up. He gave him the name that is above every name, Lord. For Paul, this is a great contrast to the humans he was with who considered the emperor their Lord. Calling Jesus Lord was a very big statement in that context. So then, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Paul is speaking to his friends that he loves, and he's going to talk about the fact that Jesus is Lord. He has authority, and he is the one to follow. He uses the word obey. Paul is the messenger who carried the gospel to them. So he's warning them to stay on course while he's away. Obey is a word that our current culture doesn't appreciate much, if we even use it at all. Something I believe that God showed me as I was reading this is the parallel between Jesus being a servant and obedient and then Paul saying we need to be obedient and also to be partnering with God in working out our salvation. Like Jesus was dependent on his Father, so shall we be. We cannot do it on our own. Jesus put on flesh so we could see what a human who is perfectly dependent on God the Father can be like. In the same way, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we work it out, sometimes we can't even see what God's doing in us. There's another book that C.S. Lewis wrote that illustrates this mystery quite well. It is a science fiction trilogy that illuminates things about being a believer. This is a quotation from a letter that Lewis wrote in which he mentions both Narnia and Ransom, who's the hero in that trilogy. The incarnation of Christ is in another world is mere supposal. But granted the supposition, he would really have been a physical object in that world as he was in Palestine, and his death on the stone table would have been a physical event no less than his death on Calvary. Again, Ransom, to some extent, plays the role of Christ, not because he allegorically represents him as Cupid represents falling in love, but because in reality, every real Christian is really called upon in some measure to enact Christ. As we learn to enact Christ, we are working with the Holy Spirit as he empowers us and transforms us. Here is a paragraph in which Lewis shows Ransom wrestling, almost as Jesus did in Gethsemane. He knows he must be doing something hard, so maybe die, but can't face it. God is at work in him as he wrestles. My name is also Ransom, said the voice. It was some time before the purport of this saying dawned on him. He whom the other worlds call Maleldil was the world's ransom, his own ransom. Well, he knew. His fear, his shame, his love, all his arguments were not altered in the least. The thing was neither more nor less dreadful than it had been before. The only difference was that he knew, almost as a historical proposition, that it was going to be done. 
You might say, if you like, that the power of choice had been simply set aside and an inflexible destiny substituted for it. On the other hand, you might say that he had been delivered from the rhetoric of his passions and had merged into unassailable freedom. Ransom could not, for the life of him, see any difference between these two statements. The passage in the book, which I took this from, is, is very long and Ransom struggles a long time to obey what he hears the Lord telling him to do. It's an imagining of the struggle that Jesus might have had in prayer before he suffered. Yet in the end, both are obedient and also helped by God in that mystery of both and. Work out your salvation and God is at work in us. I experienced some of this miracle was when I was invited to preach today. I was experiencing some resistance. <laughs> and so I thought, of course God wants me to do it because it's hard. But then I thought, I just better ask him. And when I asked him, I felt like he said, it's all about the process, Liz. It's about you and me working on it together. Don't worry about the product. Don't worry about how it sounds in the end. Just be with me and, and we'll do it together. And that really helped me to have a perspective that I could start. Um, verse 4 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If we're acquiring the mind of Christ, then grumbling is not in order. Grumbling is self-centered. It's different from grieving or expressing real emotions about life. I think God does want us to deal with our real sadness and disappointment. But grumbling is more like complaining, more like the Israelites wandering in the desert complaining. We grumble when we're not happy with life. Humility means we're not in charge. We're learning that God has given us certain things to handle, and grumbling does not help us as we go about doing what he's asked us to do. It may be just daily chores, and yet that is your work to do, to be a faithful steward of your life and your responsibilities. And when you do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's using sacrificial language here from his Jewish past. This is a place where reading the Bible well helps our understanding. Knowing the Old Testament symbols and meanings brings this to life. The sacrifices offered in the temple were to be without blemish, and Jesus, being the sacrificial lamb, was blameless and innocent. He's calling the followers to remember how Christ fulfilled the debt on our behalf, and we are now in a position by his grace to also be blameless and innocent children of God. Paul is willing to be poured out as a sacrifice on the offering of their faith, seeing it all as a gift back to God. The church can shine out in the world if they can live in humility, united as one body in Christ. They are in such contrast to the darkness around them. We can live in such contrast to the world around us. People that are not worried about the future, who can give up their rights and things for others, who work to form healthy relationships, stand out in the world. Remember, the letter to the Philippians is about how we worship the Lord Jesus. We do that by having among us the mind of Christ. The humility of Jesus that would serve his friends and enemies is to be ours as well. Since the hymn section was a song, I thought it would be good to hear it sung. I found the verses as a Gregorian chant, which was a Catholic tradition from the 9th or 10th century, 
and they often sing a cappella in Latin or Greek. I like this because it makes me feel like I'm in a holy place listening to holy words. They sing, the way they sing the words, too, with the emphasis where they place it, helps us to meditate on the passage differently than when we read it. This one is in English, and the words will be shown on the screen so you can read them. Or if you're a visual thinker, you can close your eyes and imagine who Jesus is to you. If you're a verbal thinker, you can listen to the words and imagine your life in Christ and how you can live out his kind of humility in your life. After this song, we will have ministry time. And I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thanks for listening.